So in Donald's talk last night, uh, one of the things that really resonated with me was a question that he asked. He said, what were the messengers which woke you up? And I don't know what happened for you when he asked that question, but for me, hearing that question, it was like this flash of memories and sensations. And, you know, I almost got goosebumps just remembering how many things came together uh, to get me on this path. It's such a powerful question. And when I realized what I wanted to reflect on this evening, I realized that the reflection actually begins as my answer to that question, what were some of the messengers which woke me up and got me on this path to begin with? So I thought I would start there. The talk tonight is actually going to be on the Four Noble Truths and specifically the toolkit of the Eightfold Path and how we live it. And so the context of all of that for me was that, uh, as I mentioned before, I started meditating when I was 17 years old. And at that particular time, that many years ago, this was before mindfulness was mainstream. And it was certainly before it was cool to be a teenager meditating. Now there are actually subgroups of uh, it's cool to meditate in teenage culture. But it was not like that then at all. And so, um, you know, I came to the, the meditation in that way kind of by accident and also by the privilege of the fact that I grew up here in Marin County. So there was a lot of alternative everything to choose from. And so I actually originally learned how to meditate in a circle of women all of whom were not just twice, but probably three times my age. And they were wonderful with me, really supportive. And they were doing a lot of different Marin County-style spiritual practices, but one of them was mindfulness of breathing. And I just realized, even though a lot of the other practices were a lot more interesting and exciting in terms of what they were to me, I knew I needed to learn how to calm down and breathe. So why did I need to learn how to do that? And this is kind of my part of my answer to the question about these messengers. Um, one of the reasons I mentioned before was that I was in low-level chronic pain in the body and I didn't know it. Because being 17, you just don't necessarily have thoughts like, I'm in low-level chronic pain. <laughs> uh, what actually happened was I had an intimate encounter, is how I put it, uh, in my car with the sound wall on the freeway going up 101 from San Rafael to Terra Linda. Uh, me and my car got real intimate with that sound wall, and the mark that I left on that sound wall was there for uh, many, many years to come. And so I got injured in that car accident. And that was difficult. It made it very difficult to be in the body as a messenger. But I would say an even bigger messenger was actually uh, my mother, who I consider to be my first teacher, for sure. And she was a, a very wise woman, and a very deep woman, and a very difficult woman. And she had an illness for the last 10 years of her life that was very complex. 
and I was one of her primary caregivers during those 10 years while I had not yet come of age. So she passed away when I was 23. And so I came into meditation, um, you know, as a burned out young caretaker and pretty heartbroken, you know, by the suffering that I saw in her eyes every day. And then, you know, to top it all off, the world was the same as it always is in terms of the joys and the sorrows. And I was kind of a sensitive young person. And so taking in the news of those days, uh, my heart was touched. And yet I didn't have the capacity or the resiliency to um, take in the difficulties and the pains in the world I was growing up in and not completely shut down and flood out. I wanted to do something, and yet I was also in a situation of physical pain and heart pain, and it just felt pretty, like, what do I do? Pretty overwhelming. So the other thing that was going on for me growing up here in Marin County was kind of just a generalized culture. I'm not saying this is completely true about Marin County, but um, there's, there's, there was at least something to be said about it where there's this environment of privilege. So that um, one of the results of that is people just weren't able or weren't willing to be honest about the suffering of life. It was kind of like, Oh, we're going to be comfortable here. Um, and so I got this idea when I was really young that the idea was I needed to put on a face. Do you know what I mean when I say put on a face, kind of show up, and people go, how are you? You know, my life was falling apart. How are you? And I'd smile, and I'd go, I'm fine. Yeah, because I was taught to do that. I'm sure I'm not the only one who was taught to do that. So... When I came out of my initial meditation instructions at the age of 17 and showed up here at Spirit Rock at the age of 18 and heard the teachings for the first time and received this teaching of the Four Noble Truths for the first time, it was such a relief, which I know isn't true for all of us. Because what the Four Noble Truths are is talking about the unsatisfactoriness of life the causes, the way out, and the tools. And so I know that for some of us, hearing about that difficulty can be uh, discouraging or there can be a misconception like, oh, is this just life is suffering? Is that what this Dharma is teaching? But for me, it was such a relief. It was as if I had just come into a group of people who were willing to say it how it is. Like, there is difficulty in life. We're not trying to cover it over. We're not trying to put a face on it. And not only that, but there's more than just the difficulty of life. I mean, I don't know if this is true or I've just made up a memory, but I feel like I almost laughed out loud the first time I heard the Four Noble Truths. It's like, ah, what a relief. What a relief. So what are they? Uh, Donald ended his story of the Buddha where the Buddha had had his awakening and was going out into the world. He had noticed that even though he wasn't sure anybody would grok what he had understood, uh, that there were those with little dust in their eyes. And so he went out on foot And he traveled from Bogaya, India, where he had sat under the bow tree and under several other trees after his enlightenment, because he spent a number of weeks there after his enlightenment, savoring the bliss of enlightenment. So, huh, okay. 
Even the Buddha savored the bliss of awakening. Good to know. And he traveled on foot uh, across the heartland of India to Saranath, which is near Varanasi, which is uh, you know really one of the oldest, uh, longest-term inhabited cities in the world. And when he got there, he was able to reconnect with his five old friends who had done the very severe um, kind of body-denying practices earlier on in his journey. When he had left them and gone off in his own way and started to explore this middle path of, you know, not indulging in things but also not denying things too deeply, um, his friends rejected him. They said, oh, Siddhartha, like, he's not on the true path. He's a slacker. You know, we're, we're not going to, he's not one of us, basically. But he knew that they were actually doing ardent spiritual practice, and so he went to go find them. And when he found them, they saw, he, they saw him coming, and they said, oh, there's Siddhartha. You know, wonder what he's been up to. We probably shouldn't even, you know, greet him. But the thing was, was as the Buddha approached this group of five friends, they knew something had changed. Maybe we've experienced this in somebody that we know really well. They just have some sort of insight. Something changes. We haven't seen them. And it's like, huh, something's just different. I don't know what. And so they did prepare a seat for him and welcome him. And this is when he gave the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the great turning of the wheel of Dhamma, the wheel of truth. And um, this truth in the many different ways we've explored it in our experience and understood it generation after generation after generation has continued into this time. And so what did he say? He sat down and he said, my friends, there are these two extremes that ought to be avoided by one who's gone forth into the spiritual life. What two? Friends, you know, please do not overindulge in things. Friends, please do not get consumed with self-mortification. But there's this middle way, friends, that is somewhere between the two that doesn't go to extremes. And that is the way that I found. And that is the way I invite you to explore. And then he continued and said, you know, friends, I have a teaching for you. And here it is, you know, and I I think about this. We'll never really know walking across Mother India, step by step, probably barefoot. He created a map that he thought might be able to be understood by his friends. And in fact, it was understood, deeply understood by his friends and by us today. And so this is the map of the Four Noble Truths. The first truth being, being a human being living a life includes suffering and stress. It includes the fact that things are inherently unsatisfactory. It includes that. Second noble truth, there is an underlying cause to this pain. And the underlying cause is craving. Or another way I talk about it is struggle. Because we all recognize that. We've all had a struggle or two or 500 this retreat, right? And in our lives. The third truth, there is a way out. There is a cessation to this struggle. 
There's a cessation to shooting second arrows. My favorite interpretation of the third noble truth is from Sylvia Borstein. And she says, peace is possible. Just that simple. Peace is possible. Same body, same family, same job or lack of it, same culture at large, same life, peace is possible. Sign us up. We did sign up, right? I mean, that's why we're here. We, we could have done lots of other things this week, but the possibility of deeper and deeper peace. And then the fourth noble truth, uh, there is an eightfold path to peace. There are tools. So when I was um, putting this together, I was reflecting back on all the years that I wore the mask I put on the face and I pretended like the Four Noble Truths weren't actually reality because I didn't know they existed. And I was living in a culture that was denying that part of reality. And I put on that face and they'd say, how are you? And I'd smile and I'd say, I'm fine. How are you? My favorite answer to the question, how are you, is also by Sylvia. And when people ask Sylvia, how are you, Sylvia? She says, I couldn't be better. (laughs) Do you get it? I couldn't be better. In parentheses, I couldn't be better given everything that's happened to me right now. (laughs) And so the people with little dust in their eyes might hear that and go, oh, yeah, couldn't be better than conditions are allowing. There's no struggle. And, you know, others will go, oh, great, she's doing fantastically, which may or may not be true. (laughs) I just think that's such a great answer. So we're going to fast forward in the Buddha's life story to the end of his life. And when he was about to pass away, of course, this was an extremely dark time for his community. Uh, They were grieving in advance the way we do when we know that we're going to lose a loved one. And uh, they asked him, who will be our teacher now? Who will be our teacher when you pass on? And he looked at them and he said, you know, the Dharma and the Sangha will be your teacher. There will be no successor. Just these teachings and just the communities practicing these teachings will be your teacher. And it's enough. And so when I think about those moments and what they must have been like, I feel like the Four Noble Truths are at the heart of that, that we learn them and know them in our direct experience and we practice them in our communities and support each other. And the teaching goes on, whether they're actual teachers or not. We're the teachers. We're the lineage. So... The most often asked question that I get as a teacher still all these years is the question, how do I live it? It's just a simple question, but it's really complex. How do I live it? Here we've been at this whole retreat. There's all this support. There are teachers. There's a community. You didn't have to come here and meditate alone all week. That would have been really different, right? (laughs) Got to sign up for a different place for that. Um, there was all kinds of support. And then we go out into the world where there is still all kinds of support, but not the same level of support. We have to really be on the lookout sometimes for the support. 
So um, some reflections about living it in terms of the toolbox of the fourth noble truth, the eightfold path. So I'll break it down into the three baskets model. And, you know, just acknowledge some of you are hearing this for the first time. And actually, even as I say that, it touches me because now I'm remembering back to the first time I heard it. So remember, don't worry about the whole thing. Take away one or two things. It's enough. Um, But I hope that it speaks to you in some way that similar to how it spoke to me. Some of you have been doing this for a lot of years. And so you know this teaching well. And the invitation is really to deepen and we recognize your capacity to actually live this teaching, not just intellectually know this teaching. So the three baskets model. Firstly, uh, sila in the Pali, or ethical conduct. Secondly, samadhi in the Pali, or concentration. And thirdly, panya in the Pali, or wisdom. So within the Four Noble Truths, there are three insights. Uh, that I want to talk about in particular. Actually, there are 12 insights. So it's four noble truths and three insights for each. Okay. So for each truth, whether it's the truth of our difficulties, the truth of the cause of the difficulties, the way out, or the toolbox, um, first insight is that we can reflect on these. The second insight is we can directly experience them. And the third insight is that we can know that we know. Because we do. And there's always more to know, but we can know what we know. So a wonderful reference text for this, if you're newer or if you want to explore more deeply, is Philip Moffat's book, uh, Spirit Rock Teacher here, Dancing with Life. Isn't that a great title? It's about the Four Noble Truths. It's called Dancing with Life. just totally explains it to me. So we'll start with the ethical conduct, which of course is grounded in non-harming. So we have wise action, wise speech, and wise livelihood. And these are all grounded in the five lay precepts um, that we took last night in our ritual. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the training to not take life, to not take what isn't offered to me, to be wise and careful with my sexuality, with my speech, and with the use of intoxicants. And of course, with the last three, sometimes wise and careful with those is actually abstinence. (laughs) Although that gets complicated with speech. (laughs) But even as I said it, I was remembering um, uh, an elder that I've never met and never will that's inspired me in my life, but uh, her, her name... Is a peace pilgrim. I don't actually remember her, her real name, but uh, she would walk back and forth across this country. This is a, a while back, some decades back, and she took a vow of silence for peace. You know, and she'd have a sign explaining why she was doing that, and it was her practice, and it was quite deep. So sometimes, even that, you know, even that. I'll share with you a quote that I love. It's called The Fragrance of Morality, and it's by a Tibetan teacher, Anam Tutin. In, uh, let's see. 
In Buddhism, we talk about the fragrance of morality. It means when you practice integrity, it's almost like you have an extraordinary divine scent around you, and you magnetize everything you are searching for. All the goodness, virtue, joy, freedom, even enlightenment if that's what you're looking for. Integrity is the first step towards the highest goals you are trying to actualize in this human existence. When we practice maintaining integrity and demonstrate it through our actions, speech, and the way we treat other people, we become extraordinary examples to inspire others. And then he uses this image. Um, That's why I'm sharing it tonight, because the candles for our solstice ritual, just so wonderful. He says, it's like how one candle can light hundreds of candles, and those hundreds of candles can light thousands of candles. That's what we're doing. So talk about a few practices. Uh, make it very, uh, very practical here at the end of the retreat. So if we look at under the insight of reflecting, one way that I practice with basic integrity, and I have and I still do, is the daily taking of the precepts, and sometimes also the refuges that we've been taking. Uh, Sometimes I'll do a daily reflection at the end of the day, too. And I remember one period of time when I was commuting, and my commute was about 20 minutes, which is, you know, a lovely length commute in this day and age. And I decided, I don't know, I must have done this for a year or two, to turn off all the technology and actually take that time of commuting to chant the refuges in the car, and then to take the precepts. And then I would reflect on what precept I wanted to particularly investigate and explore under the second insight of direct experience that day or that week. And then when I was driving home, I would reflect and go, how did it go? And sometimes how it went was like I completely forgot that I was even doing that practice that day. And sometimes I could really start to see the nuances of how our manifestation of integrity is so subtle, and how our intentions are usually mixed, and how we can have the best of intentions, but somehow uh, it got a little bit skewed, or I could refresh some area. It was a, a great way to settle, even though I was driving at high speeds, you know, kind of bookmark the day. So we can directly experience in that way, and we can take on one precept or habit pattern for a period of time. We can reflect on it daily. We could write about it. We could talk with a Dharma buddy about it. And I wanted to take a a particular moment to focus on why speech, because, of course, there's been some questions in the hall already and people checking in in group. Uh, isn't it lovely to feel uh, kind of you know connected and supported and supportive in a silent community before our personalities roar to the foreground again? <laughs> They'll roar forward. You know, it's, it's their function. Just these little personality creatures. We've got to figure out how to be in relationship with them too. So um, the basic guidelines on wise speech, I'm sure Donald will re-articulate some version of this tomorrow morning, uh, is speech that is truthful, has appropriate timing, is non-divisive, and is kind. 
And they actually all need to weave together because we've all said something kind and the timing was completely inappropriate and we just interrupted somebody's process. We've all done it. We've all said something truthful that was like completely received as not kind. It was true, but it, you know, it wasn't really nice. (laughs) So we have to weave them all together. And again, we can take on one of these guidelines at a time to reflect on and practice directly and celebrate what we already know. I want to acknowledge that we actually have two experts sitting up here uh, on the topic of wise speech. Uh, Donald and Oren have really taken this on both in their own practice and in their teaching as a primary modality. I have to say, especially Oren um, is a master teacher of nonviolent communication. And they both uh, teach a retreat here at Spirit Rock that's just on wise speech a whole week. So that just tells you how much there is and how important it is, and that we're going to be practicing with this for the rest of our lives. And we know it. So I just thought I'd pull out one piece for fun, for further reflection. And I was uh, looking at Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, uh, The Noble Eightfold Path, and Bhikkhu Bodhi is one of the great scholars and activists of our time, representing the Buddhist tradition. And he made an interesting point that is uh, is for your reflection. And it's specifically about the category of wise speech that's timely. And one of the subtitles under timely includes not over-engaging in idle chatter. Okay, so basically like gossip or idle chatter because, you know, it can cause harm, of course. So he says... The, uh, the traditional way of abstaining from idle chatter refers only to avoiding engagement in such talk oneself. But today it might be of value to give this factor a different slant uh, because of certain developments particular to our own time, unknown in the days of the Buddha and the ancient commentators. This is avoiding exposure to the idle chatter constantly bombarding us through the new media of communication created by modern technology. An incredible array of devices, television, radio, newspapers, pulp journals, and cinema, turn out a continuous stream of needless information (laughs) and distracting environment, the net effect of which is to leave the mind passive, vacant, and sterile. All of these developments, naively accepted as progress, threaten to blunt our aesthetic and spiritual sensitivities and deafen us to the higher call of the contemplative life. Serious practitioners on the path to liberation have to be extremely discerning in what they allow themselves to be exposed to. Now, I read this, and I had the thought, I wonder when this was written. And I looked in the front of the book, and um, the update of this book was 1994. Okay, so we're 20 years later now. And I think, and it's gotten even more, and it's going to get even more probably, faster and faster, more and more, more and more portable. Oh boy. Um, So how are we going to be wise with this is a really big question. And the the practice these days is how to be in wise and skillful relationship with our technology. Some of us take periods of time where we turn it off. 
you know, not just in a retreat, but in our daily lives, a period of a day, a day every week, or periods of time. And that can be skillful to create space for more in our hearts uh, and in our spiritual calling. But this is the world we live in. We can't deny it. So for me, when he says a, a you know, serious uh, practitioner needs to reflect on this, it's that commitment we made to really turn it all off when we came here. And thank you for doing that. It has far-reaching implications. And we can catch up on what we need to catch up on when we get back. It also means that right after we leave retreat, um, you don't need to turn it on all on again too quickly. You can titrate it. You don't need to answer all the emails immediately. Um, it's actually okay to take time with and take time away. And that kind of back and forth starts to train us to how to live a life that way. I sort of have a practice after I get out of retreat of taking at least 24 hours, 48 if I can, before I turn on anything beyond perhaps my phone if it's needed. Um, I figure if there's nobody in my immediate circle being born and there's nobody in my immediate circle that's dying, it's probably okay. <laughs> no. And and I do, I check, because sometimes there is somebody in my immediate circle being born or dying, and then that's a different practice. You know, it's just helpful. So knowing that we know, you know, we actually, we know this, and then we just try it on, and we start to cultivate and appreciate the simplicity, the wholesomeness, Um, we treasure our basic integrity and we treasure it in a human way so that that basic integrity doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be real. So then we move on to the second basket, which is samadhi or or, uh, kind of mindfulness concentration. So the the three spokes of the Eightfold Path, this falls under, are wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So now we need to talk about a daily sitting practice, which we have been talking about in the groups today, I know. So a few basics, and then a little bit more nuanced. Um, The basics are that coming out of a retreat like this is a fantastic time to recommit yourself to a formal daily sitting meditation practice. You have momentum. You know, please give yourself the gift of using that momentum. And so if a daily sitting practice is new for you, finding a place where you live um, to do it, that there's not too much complexity around, although, you know, we have different living situations, but a simpler corner of the house and maybe uh, a special little altar like we've been building collectively back there is helpful. Sometimes it's just a stone laying somewhere, simple, or a candle. And then we choose a time of day that we're going to commit to do it so that we know, ah, this is the time of day. It just becomes a habit, like any habit. We're habitual creatures, we might as well use it for the wholesome, right? It can also really help to have um, allies. Allies in this. So we talk about those as Dharma buddies. But the thing is, is 
an ally for you doesn't actually even need to be somebody that meditates. It could be somebody living with you in your home who really doesn't even know a lot about it necessarily. And if it was somebody like that, you would just say to them, hey, I just got off this retreat and, you know, I really want to continue my training. And so I'm committing that I'm going to meditate every day. And it'd be really great if you could cheer me on with that because you know how hard it is to develop a new habit, like when you want to get exercising again or you want to change your diet and you make it real for them. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I could cheer you on with that. I could ask you if you sat today. You could tell me if you did. You know, it doesn't even need to be a meditator. But if it is, all the better. And so let's talk about wise use of our technology. In a lot of communities these days, somebody will get a Dharma buddy Oh, and here's a little secret. You know, at the end of the retreat when we we start talking and maybe you're excited about that, maybe you're dreading that. One of the things that is wonderful about the potential of this kind of communication at the end of the retreat is we have dropped the social mask. And so it's okay to do awkward social things like go up to somebody that you don't know and say, hey, you know, I'm looking for a Dharma buddy that we could, um, you know, text every day or once a week. And I can say, I sat five out of seven days this week. How about you? And you can write me back and go, oh, my gosh, I totally forgot. Thanks for reminding me. I'll get back to you next week. Some people do that every day. Uh, Some people do that once a week. Some people use uh, the, the forms through our phones. There's, there's one that's called Insight Timer. And when you turn it on, you can see all the other people on the planet, and it shows the continents. So you see people, little dots all over the world are meditating right now. Now here's the thing. Somebody told me about Insight Timer years before I got one of those um, smartphones. And I didn't even need to have a smartphone or an insight timer. Every time I'd sit, I'd think about everybody all over the world meditating and all the little dots, and I'd smile. (laughs) So the thing about insight timer is it also has a journal option at the end, so you can write down at the end of your meditation, bored the whole time, day two, totally restless, day three, completely enlightened, Day four, (laughs) fallen down again. (laughs) You can really track thematically what happens in your practice. You can do that in a notebook too, you know. I have many um, people that I work with individually that have special calendars. I have a special calendar. I have five different mindfulness practices that I'm tracking in my daily life right now. Uh, And so it needed a special place in my calendar. And I look forward to every day marking down and being really rigorously honest with myself about what I'm doing and celebrating it and also rigorously honest about what I'm not doing and recommitting myself to try again tomorrow. So um, we sit, some of us will be integrating in metta, maybe at the beginning or the end of the meditation. Some of us will be working with the breath or the body. You find your own way. We need to understand that daily sitting and all kinds of daily mindfulness practice happens in cycles. So I'll give you an example of somebody I work with individually. Uh, They have a busy season at work, and their work schedule got really busy. They're very committed to meditating 30 minutes a day. But they got too busy. 
And so the month that we had our check-in, they said, yeah, work is really busy. And so I haven't been able to meditate 30 minutes a day. And then they said, so I'm meditating 20 minutes a day. And I just smiled so big. And I said to them, you know, I think it's great that just because your life conditions aren't supporting what you always do, you didn't just give up and say, okay, well, so I can't sit. We need to allow the flexibility for our lives to ebb and flow, for our health to ebb and flow, for our families to ebb and flow, and find a way to make it work instead of, I will do this, and if this doesn't work, then, I, then I'll give up, or, you know, whatever. We also need to understand that daily sitting is not the only practice to cultivate mindfulness and concentration. Another practitioner that I work with is a, uh, a working mom of two really active kids. And uh, every time, not every time, but a lot of times when I talk to her, conversation goes something like this. I'm really glad to check in, Heather. I have to confess to you, I haven't been sitting the way that I committed to last month. Uh, and then there's like some guilt. And... The thing is, is when I look at this practitioner, what I actually see is that her entire life is the expression of the Eightfold Path. It's just she's a working mother of two busy kids. And so what I said to her at some point this year was, listen, you've got these two kids, you're working a full-time job, you know the teachings, and you're doing your best to live them. Let's not worry about the daily sit. Why don't you try this? And what I said to her was this. When you wake up in the morning, what I want you to do is um, feel your body resting on the bed, set your intention for the practice for the day, wish yourself well, and then get up and go. The kids need breakfast and they need to get to school on time. And I could just feel the relief coming from her. Really? That's enough? I said, absolutely. I said, if you want to advance practice, do the exact same thing when you go to bed and you're tired. And then she started giggling. (laughs) I don't consider that to be secondary practice. I consider it to be meeting the conditions of our life. So a few other daily life activities which support both mindfulness and concentration. Uh, One, of course, is staying embodied, the attention staying in the body. So whether it's, uh, you know, uh, one of my daily mindfulness practices is exercise. And I've taken it on as part of my Dharma practice because once I did that, it totally changed it from something that I should do that I'm supposed to do to something that like feels part of a wider whole of the expression of of living a spiritual life. Really helpful for me. Uh, Sports develop mindfulness and concentration. Uh, Music, art, Really focusing on embodied listening and mindful speech can be an incredible, it's like we're with someone and we care about them and the focus and the mindfulness of our body and what they're saying can be an incredible mindfulness concentration practice. And we've all already experienced all this in our lives. We're just now taking it on. Uh, I wrote a, a title under this called Joyful Focus. And, and under it, I wrote everything from, you know, fine-tune work like knitting or fixing gadgets or uh, metta in the car. A lot of people send metta while they're driving. Oh. 
I have a metta practice where when somebody's driving recklessly or fast or they cut me off, I used to get annoyed. Are you surprised? No. I used to get annoyed, so I was like, okay, I need some retraining here. I sort of trained the mind to have a first response of, I hope you get there safely. Really realizing that I have no idea whether somebody's being born, somebody's dying, you know, something, they need to get somewhere fast. Maybe they're just doing it because they're unconscious. But I would rather send along, I hope you get there safely. We start to collect the mind around the metta and focus it around the metta while we're driving. I was thinking about how Sylvia has a knitting group here at Spirit Rock once a month. You can actually come here once a month and do your your knitting and uh, mindfully together have a little Dharma conversation. If you don't live around here, you don't need to come to Spirit Rock and visit Sylvia. Just grab a few friends, knit together quietly, talk. We can return to the primary object in activities. So that might be focusing on a continuity of mindfulness in our lives. Maybe we choose a few anchors. I know some people that actually use the breath as an anchor in their daily life. It's usually people who have been meditating longer. It's very helpful for them. Uh, Sometimes it's something kind of more grounded, like just coming back to your feet a lot. It's an anchor in all activities. What, What posture am I feet in right now? What's going on? And of course, that settles the nervous system. I've already shared that I feel like uh, mindfulness of the nervous system is, is one of the dharmas of our times. So when I think about that in relation to the traditional three types of suffering, so when we talk about the Four, um, four Noble Truths, the first one being there's difficulty in life, there's suffering in life. There's also three different, more nuanced categories of that suffering. And I feel like this embodied presence and being mindful of our nervous system is helpful in relating to all of them. So what are they? Uh, The first of the categories of how we suffer is the physical and mental pain. And so we've talked about here how with physical pain, and we can do this in our lives, it's like, oh, ouch. I, uh, I stubbed my toe horribly about a week ago. I actually thought I broke it. And it was so intensely painful. And, uh, you know, I mean, just almost kind of went, uh, lost sight for a second, just this moment of intense pain. And as soon as that passed, uh, the next thing for me that happened is like, okay, can I take three breaths with this? Because three breaths was enough. And it's like, okay, can I take three breaths with this pain? And I could. And then I kind of needed to pull back from it because it was so intense. Uh, and feel like the rest of my body and make sure I was all here and realize the rest of my body was not in excruciating pain. It was just my toe. You know, and then I could take three more breaths and then I could go sit down and get some ice, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's like we're weaving this together. How do we meet the suffering in our lives with mindfulness? Sometimes the pain is mental. We're really, really sad. We're grieving. And we need to breathe in that grief for a time, but then it's not cheating to shift the center of gravity and say, okay, and what are three things that I'm grateful for in the midst of this grief? You know, and. The second category of uh, the way that we suffer or experience dissatisfaction 
is the, the dissatisfaction around change. And the thing is, is because things are always changing, if we start to struggle with it, fight it, want it to be otherwise, uh, there's an underlying anxiety that starts to happen. And so we need to ground again and again and again and feel our feet and go, oh, fighting change. Whoa. Well, change is a power greater than myself. I don't think I'm going to win on that one. So, you know, can I ground? Can I acknowledge that I'm here in the sea of change? And then the third category is uh, kind of the pain of taking ourselves to be someone. And as we take ourselves to be someone, and just kind of the unsatisfactoriness of being a human being, it's like when we're on retreat, maybe you experience this, we brush our teeth, we go, wow, all these bubbles and sensations and hot and cool and oh, the taste and wow, this is pretty cool brushing my teeth. It's like things that became that were tedious became enlivened. We go back into our lives, they can become kind of burdensome and tedious again. Ah, get up again, brush my teeth again, make the food again, do the dishes again. We're in kind of the burden burdensomeness of being a human being. And at that point we also need to shift the center of gravity and go, Oh, maybe I need some more mindfulness. You know, maybe I need to reconnect back with like the joy of brushing my teeth or, uh, you know, call it up, call it up. So with all of this, we're really working with wise effort, which is getting to know more and more deeply what is helpful and what isn't helpful, what is wholesome and what isn't wholesome. So we can reflect and directly experience, and know what we know with that. And I was thinking about doubt, and how some of us have expressed doubt. Like, am I really doing this right? Did I I get something out of this retreat? Can I keep going? Doubts. It's a hindrance, right? Because if we believe the doubt, then we lose the momentum. We lose the trust. So I have a little thing that I say to myself and I say to many of you when that kind of thing comes up. And what I say is, you know, with this whole practice and with the meditation for sure, you can't do it wrong. You can't do it wrong. Because your intention is sincere. But here's the other piece of good news. You can't do it right either. So sometimes I'll be sitting on a retreat or I'll be sitting in my daily life and it just felt like a total nothing sit, like I just wasted my time. And the little timer will go off and I'll just smile to myself and I'll go, great job, Heather. That was great. You didn't get up and run out of the room screaming. (laughs) It's like, perfect. Just keep going. So we start to develop an internal relationship with what is helpful and what isn't helpful. And as we do that, we're wisening the effort, we're adjusting what we do internally and externally. And it's just the art of practice and the art of living a life. And we don't have to get it right or wrong. So then we have the third basket, which is uh, panya or wisdom. The two spokes of the Eightfold Path are wise intention and wise understanding. 
so first, uh, under the, the insight category of reflection, we'll talk about wise intention. And the Buddha said this, Friends, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. That's both totally inspiring and totally scary. <laughs> because, you know, think about the range of things we frequently reflect and ponder about. So we need to gather some momentum around wholesome intentions. And in the tradition, wholesome intentions have the characteristics of simplicity, of loving kindness, and of non-harming. So we can be on the lookout for those. I'll give you an example of an intention practice that uh, when my friend told me this, I thought, oh, that's a good one. Got to pass that one on. So I have a good friend. And every year she, around this time, so I thought, oh, this would be good because we're almost at the new year. She creates a collage and kind of a a huge art piece. And uh, she works out areas of the collage that are areas of intention for different parts of her life for the new year. And then she hangs it on the wall of her bedroom. And then she uses it regularly to make more specific intentions that are in alignment with her higher values as she moves through the year. And it's a constant reminder of not just what her intentions are, but also that the practice is progressing. It's like, oh yeah, this is what was on my heart and mind the beginning of the year. Now it's halfway through the year. I can see something manifesting. Huh, not exactly what I thought was going to manifest with that, but something's manifesting. That's good. Or I love uh, a practice that Gil Fronsdale has. Again, a teacher here at Spirit Rock. I don't know if he still does this, but for a while, when he would make his to-do list, and I love to-do lists. They're, they're <laughs> in a world of unsatisfactoriness, I find checking off to-do lists inherently satisfying. <laughs> That's just me. So for a while, when he would make his to-do list, there was the content of what he needed to do. And then there was another area of the piece of paper. And on that area of the piece of paper, he'd jot down an intention for how he wanted to do that item. I thought, ooh, that's nice. So um, another way that we can start cultivating wise understanding through direct experience is direct experience of the cessation of craving, the cessation of struggle. And there are three types of craving that fall under the second noble truth of, you know, how we come to have unsatisfactoriness and suffering. So I'll talk a little bit about them. Particularly I want to talk about the, uh, the craving or the struggle that happens at the sense doors. And just flesh this out a little further. Um, what I'm about to offer is a much more advanced practice, but I want to be sure to speak to everybody that's here, and there's such a range of experience here. So we have the six sense doors, the five plus the mind, and John, a few nights ago, was talking about closing the sense doors, and I've had a couple questions about that from you since then, so I'm going to flesh it out a little further. Um, with closing the sense doors, we're not talking about actually not being able to hear or see or taste or think uh, exactly. Uh, but I brought in a quote that's from Ayakema that I hope will illuminate this a little further. 
And Ayakema was the first Western fully ordained nun in our tradition, a German by birth and, and first fully ordained bhikkhuni. So she says this, By being aware, we can learn to realize that hearing is just hearing and seeing is just seeing. Hearing is only sound. Seeing is only sight. The mind creates all the ideas around our sense of contact, such as, this is beautiful and I want it. This is ugly and I don't ever want to see or hear it again. Our senses are in constant touch with the world. We don't want to be blind and deaf and have no sense of taste, touch, or smell. Life will be extremely difficult in such a, such a case. But the senses create a world of illusion for us. The senses are magicians because upon contact, they immediately induce the mind to create repercussions. We need to guard our sense doors. So this is how we do this. We need to guard our sense doors so that while being aware of sights and sounds and touch and smell, we neither crave nor reject them. The middle way, right? This is difficult to do, but a very important aspect of leaving suffering behind. So they're there. We're experiencing the fullness of life but we're not craving or rejecting. My friends, there's this middle way between the two extremes. I hear the Buddha whispering in the background. So how we can practice this in daily life is we can choose one sense door. And uh, we could notice the pleasant and pleasant neutral if we're feeling a little settled. If we're not feeling a little settled, we can notice liking or disliking at that sense door and actually stop the process right there before we become the person who likes it and dislikes and is creating a whole world about it. We just get to stop the reactivity. Stop the struggle right there. Advanced practice. It's a practice I did for an entire year uh, based on the guidance of my root teacher from Thailand. (laughs) He said to me as he was leaving one year, and I asked him for practice instructions for the next year, and he said, Heather, For the next year, I want you to do this. Track the sense doors. Notice liking and disliking in all circumstances and see the emptiness of that. Good luck. (laughs) Very, very difficult practice. I learned a lot. But you don't have to do it with all of them and you don't have to do it all the time. Choose one sense door and uh, do it when it's helpful. So the, uh, the other cravings that I want to be brief about are the craving to become and the craving to not become. So this is just the brief version because I wanted to focus on one a little more deeply instead of all three more shallowly. Uh, becoming and non-becoming. We notice when our sense of okayness is dependent on either being somebody or not being somebody. So you know how you've been planning all day? How did I know? (laughs) You've been planning all day, and you start to become the person that's going to enact the plan. Me, in a more awakened state with my family at the holidays. (laughs) I have just become. (laughs) 
you know, me wishing that I could crawl in a hole and not be anybody with my family for the holidays. So we can notice that. We can also notice when we're not shooting the second arrow as a way of, you know, being wise with our understanding, the cessation of suffering. We can notice the not shooting the second arrow instead of just noticing when we do shoot the second arrow. So I wanted to read to you a little bit of uh, the direct translation around these Four Noble Truths with the insight, the insight of reflecting, of directly experiencing, and of knowing what we know. And it talks about dukkha. Dukkha is translated as unsatisfactoriness or uh, suffering, just to keep it simple. This is the noble truth of dukkha. Thus, friends, in regards to things unheard of before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. So we know what we know. This is the truth of unsatisfactoriness. It's like this. This is the truth of dukkha, and it is to be fully understood. Thus, friends, in regards to things unheard of before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. We understand it. This noble truth of dukkha has been fully understood. Thus, friends, in regard to things unheard of before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. And it works the same with the abandoning of the origins of our suffering, with the realizing of the cessation of suffering, and of cultivating the path. These four truths. So as we practice this, the view, our understanding gets wiser and wiser. And I just use the Four Noble Truths as a basic orientation of life. I'm always on the lookout for You know, is is this unsatisfactoriness in the foreground? Is this suffering in the foreground? Um, Oh, this is the cause. I'm struggling. Oh, peace is possible. Oh, there's tools. What are they? How can I use them? And I just keep reorienting to which part of it is appropriate in any given moment. Uh, It's just something that's part of direct experience then we're, uh, you know, we really are practicing them directly and we can start to drink in and I encourage us to drink in what we know. Let's not worry about what we don't know. We're going to be doing this for the rest of our lives. We know what we know. Can you feel that? We know what we know. Me almost saying that as a catalyst, I bet some of you wanted to doubt when I said that. It's like, I don't know what I know. It's like, okay, don't worry about it on the intellectual level. We know what we know. So I'm going to close with a poem from Donna Falds, uh, a teacher and a poet. And there's, I haven't ever read a poem from her that I didn't absolutely love. So this one's called Choosing Life. She says, the downward spiral starts. Self-doubt and darkness vie for center stage, while I, the passive drowning one, wait for my demise. 
Just as I sink beneath the waves of my despair, a thought arises. Why go there? I've made this trip a thousand times, and it leads nowhere. I'm choosing life. The darkness lifts just a little. I'm choosing life. The downward spiral slows and then stops. I'm lifted up and buoyant now, not shrinking from the truth. Okay, I'm not perfect. And reality certainly doesn't look like what I'd choose. And maybe that's the only point. To ride the spirals down and up and make the choice for life. So that's, that's the invitation. May we make the choice for life. So that is what I have to offer for reflection. And I thank you for the kindness of your attention and the depth of your practicing.